Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction, both novels and short stories. I'm glad we are together for it. This is Jim Thayer. A listener, Denise, sent me a great suggestion. She wrote, I wonder if you could look at character-driven stories like Steinbeck's Cannery Row, for example. Stories that are actually kind of light on any specific plot, but have interesting characters in their daily lives. I'm glad Denise mentioned this topic. Some folks put stories into two categories, character-driven and plot-driven. Character-driven books tend to emphasize the protagonist's internal growth. This is from the Jericho writers. A character-driven story is one where the focus will be more on character development than on the plot. In these stories, you are more likely to feel fully engaged with the character and become more focused on their personal journey. And this is uh, from Palmetto Books. Uh, they say a character-driven, uh, character-driven stories prioritize the protagonist's inner thoughts, personal growth, and relationships. The book emphasizes the character's internal conflict, such as feelings of guilt or trauma, over external plot-driven conflicts. Uh, that's from Palmetto Books. Character-driven books tend to be uh, more literary and slower-paced than plot-driven books. Popular stories in this category would be The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, maybe Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins, The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak, uh, Donna Tartt's novel The Goldfinch, and Stephen Chbosky's novel The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I tend not to think about a dichotomy between plot-driven and character-driven stories. There are likely extreme stories at both ends, but most novels fall somewhere in the middle between the extremes. Here's an example. Is Margaret Mitchell's novel Gone with the Wind plot-driven or character-driven? There's a lot of plot. Uh, The Civil War, Ashley going off to war, the burning of Atlanta, the rapacious Union soldier visiting Terra, the greedy carpetbagger, uh, Rhett being thrown into jail, the, the raiding of the camp, and much more. But there's also a lot of character developments. Scarlet going from a society flirt and twit to a sickened but brave nurse in a soldier's hospital to, to a steely rebuilder of Terra to an inveigler of the smuggler Rhett Butler, to a wealthy landowner, uh, to a grieving mother, we see her change again and again and develop over the course of the novel. There are lots of plot and character development in Gone with the Wind. Few novels can be called exclusively a character-driven story or a plot-driven story. Plot-driven stories, even... Stories with heavy action should feature a protagonist who changes and grows during the story. She, the protagonist, learns something about herself. She changes for the better amid the action. So they are plot-driven, but also character-driven. 
Other novels, which can be called character-driven, such as To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, The Great Gatsby, Where the Crawdads Sing, the, all have action, along with a deep look at the characters. External things happen. It's not all inside the character. I want to offer some thoughts to, to those of us who want to write a character-driven novel. Uh, sure, character-driven novels... Uh, delve deeper into the characters, but there are traps for writers aiming for a character-driven novel. A story which visits a character's mind with little else cannot in all likelihood be a successful story. A story needs some action and some tension. Uh, It needs a resolution. Uh, It needs a story arc. First, a big trap for those of us writing a character-driven novel is too much navel-gazing, which is interior monologue, the character thinking, where the character thinks about how she feels about things. Uh, Long navel-gazing, big paragraphs of interior monologue, is ruinous to any plot including one where the main character's emotions are a main ingredient. The the key is that much of what a character is thinking can be shown by what she does and says and what happens to her. Character-driven stories often feature the protagonist's inner uh, inner conflict, but this internal conflict shouldn't be presented by spending too much time inside the character's brain. Another big trap for those of us writing a character-driven story is too much backstory, especially if the backstory is too early in the novel. As you know, backstory is events that happen before the stories now, before the first page. Backstory is history, usually the protagonist's history. Perhaps there's more room for backstory in a character-driven novel, but I think we should be careful. Readers mostly want to see what will happen, not what has happened. Readers, readers want forward momentum. Uh, my caution against backstory, which you've heard me mention in earlier episodes, applies to character-driven novels as well. It's particularly important for new writers of plot-driven and character-driven novels not to put backstory in the novel early. Uh, Let the story develop in the story now for quite a while before inserting backstory, and then keep the backstory short. Uh, Another trap, sometimes we writers start to explore a character's mind too deeply when we don't have enough plot figured out. If we get the feeling we are padding our character's thoughts or padding his background in backstory, maybe it's because we haven't figured out enough things to happen in this story, physical things happening in this story now. In other words, we don't have enough plot. Another trap is not enough action as we write our character-driven story. Readers usually find action the most interesting element in a novel watching a character do something. Even if our novel is character-driven, even if we are going to delve into the depths of our protagonist's psyche, 
action should be a significant element of the story. Action can work to reveal, to reveal that is to show, much about the character, uh, to show the reader's personality and her thoughts. Character-driven stories can be powerful. They can be moving and unforgettable. Uh, think of Sally Rooney's normal people. But we writers shouldn't forget that successful stories are presented in a certain way, irrespective of the genre, even character-driven stories. Most all the techniques we talk about in these podcasts apply to character-driven novels. I would like to mention Ernest Hemingway's Seven Tips on Writing Fiction. An article appeared in the Open Culture website written by Mike Springer. Mike Springer wrote, Before he was a big game hunter, before he was a deep-sea fisherman, Ernest Hemingway was a craftsman who would rise very early in the morning and write. His best stories are masterpieces of the modern era, and his prose style is one of the most influential of the 20th century. Uh, Springer goes on to say, Hemingway never wrote a treatise on the art of writing fiction. He did, however, leave behind a great many passages in letters, articles, and books with opinions and advice on writing. Some of the best of those were assembled in 1984 by Larry W. Phillips into a book. We've selected seven of our favorite quotations from the book and placed them on this page, and here they are. Number one, write one true sentence. Hemingway had a trick for overcoming writer's block. In a movable feast, he wrote, Sometimes when I, when I was starting a new story and I could not get it going, I would sit in front of the fire and squeeze the peel of, a little, of the little oranges into the edge of the flame and watch the sputter of blue that they made. I would stand and look out over the roofs of Paris and think, do not worry, you have always written before and you will write now. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. It was easy then because there was always one true sentence that I knew or had seen or had heard someone say. If I started to write elaborately or like someone introducing or presenting something, I found that I could cut that scroll work or ornament out and throw it away and start with the first true simple declarative sentence I had written. That's Ernest Hemingway's first tip. Here's his second one. Also, uh, rather, always stop for the day while you still know what will happen next. Uh, Ernest Hemingway wrote, The best way is always to stop when you are going good and when you know what will happen next. If you do that every day when you are writing a novel, you will never be stuck. That is the most valuable thing I can tell you, so try to remember it. Here's the third tip from uh, Ernest Hemingway, collected by Mike Springer at the Open Culture website. Never think about the story when you're not working. Uh, Springer says, Hemingway says never to think about the story when you're not working on before you begin again the next day. Quote, that way, your subconscious will work on it all the time. 
Hemingway said, but if you think about it consciously or worry about it, you will kill it and your brain will be tired before you start. And then he wrote in A Movable Feast, when I was writing, it was necessary for me to read after I had written. If you kept thinking about it, you would lose the thing you were writing before you could go on with it the next day. It was necessary to get exercise, to be tired in the body, and it was very good to make love with whom you loved. That was better than anything. But afterwards, when you were empty, it was necessary to read in order not to think or worry about your work until you could do it again. I had learned already never to empty the well of my writing, but always to stop when there was still something there in the deep part of the well and let it refill at night from the springs that fed it. Ernest Hemingway's fourth technique, when it's time to work again, always start by reading what you've written so far. He wrote in an, in an Esquire article, the best way is to read it all every day from the start, correcting as you go along, then go on from where you stopped the day before. When it gets so long that you can't do this every day, read back two or three chapters each day, then each week read it all from the start. That's how you make it all of one piece. His fifth technique, and we've talked about it in these episodes, this is Ernest Hemingway's technique. Don't describe an emotion. Make it. In Death in the Afternoon, Hemingway wrote about his early struggles to master this technique. I was trying to write then, and I found the greatest difficulty, aside from knowing truly what you really felt, rather than what you were supposed to feel and had been taught to feel, was to put down what really happened in action what the actual things were which produced the emotion that you experienced, working very hard to get it. Ernest Hemingway's sixth technique, use a pencil. And Mike Springer says that Hemingway often used a typewriter when composing letters or magazine pieces, but for serious work, he preferred a pencil. Uh, Ernest Hemingway said, if you write with a pencil, you get three different sights at it to see if the reader is getting what you want him to. First, when you read it over. Then when it is typed, you get another chance to improve it. And again in the proof. Writing it first in pencil gives you one-third more chance to improve it. That is a 333 batting average, which is damn good average for a hitter. It also keeps it fluid longer so you can so you can better it easier. And number seven, the last one, in a letter to his editor, Hemingway wrote, it wasn't by accident that the Gettysburg Address was so short. The laws of prose writing are as immutable as those of flight, of mathematics, of physics. Those are seven of Ernest Hemingway's techniques for writing, uh, written up by Mike, Mike Springer at the Open Culture website. Uh, what a great list. Here is a terrific plotting technique. I'd like to mention uh, a strong plotting technique for early in our novel when we're writing it, and it's from Kurt Vonnegut. 
And he said, When I used to teach creative writing, I would tell the students to make their characters want something right away, even if it's only a glass of water. Characters paralyzed by the meaninglessness of modern life still have to drink water from time to time. That's Kurt Vonnegut. The reader will want for the protagonist what the protagonist wants. Sometimes these immediate desires are the main story question, uh, such as Andy Weir's novel The Martian, where the protagonist wants to survive. That's early in the novel, and it, that desire drives the entire plot. Other times, the thing the hero wants right away is smaller to get the story going. To get the story going, in Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout Finch wants to play with her brother Jim, but he's too busy reading. She tries to get his attention by telling him that she saw Boo Radley. He doesn't believe her. That's that's Scout's early desire, to get her brother to pay attention to her and play with her. Uh, Katniss Everdeen wants to protect her sister Primrose, uh, who's been chosen... Uh, as tribute for the Hunger Games, Katniss volunteers to take her place. That desire to protect her sister is set out in the first page. Uh, later, her goal is to survive herself. In Patrick O'Brien's first novel in the Master and Commander series, the first novel's called Master and Commander, we learn within several pages that uh, Lieutenant Jack Aubrey desperately wants to get a ship. He's stuck on land without a ship. In The Count of Monte Cristo, it's clear within a page or two that Edmond Dante's goal is to marry the beautiful Mercedes. That's his uh, desire. Uh, That goal, of course, is replaced, as the story goes on, by the goals of escaping and revenge. In... On the bright side, I'm now the girlfriend of a sex god, Further Confessions of Georgia Nicholson, by Louise Renison. The protagonist, Georgia, who uh, lives in in Great Britain, in the first few pages desperately wants not to go to New Zealand with her family, as her father's found a job there. This desire, uh, it's a MacGuffin. Uh, A MacGuffin is something that's necessary to the plot and maybe the motivation of the characters, but it becomes insignificant or even irrelevant uh, as the story goes on. In this novel, The Bright Side, George's desperate desire in the first chapter, and, and she is desperate, is to stay at home in the UK. But her mom resolves the issue early, and Georgia goes on to other desires. They aren't going to New Zealand after all. Here's a solid technique. After we have written our first scene, the very first scene in our story, we can ask ourselves, does the main character want something badly? What is it? What does she want that she can't have at this point? Uh, Does the reader understand it? If these things are apparent in our first scene, we may have a great first scene. We have launched the story, and it's off to a strong start. How does Joyce Carol Oates work? According to Mason Curry in his book Daily Rituals, which I've been reading, as you know, Joyce Carol Oates, quote, 
works from 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning until 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Then she eats lunch and allows herself an afternoon break before returning to work uh, from 4 p.m. until dinner around 7 o'clock. Sometimes she will continue writing after dinner, but more often she reads in the evening. Uh, Given the number of hours she spends at the desk, Oates has pointed out her productivity is not really so remarkable. Uh, She said, quote, I write and write and write and rewrite, and even if I retain only a single page from a full day's work, it is a single page, and these pages add up. As a result, Joyce Carol Oates said, I have acquired the reputation over the years of being prolix when, in fact, I am measured against people who simply don't work as hard or as long. Uh, That's Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, Mason Curry goes on to say, This doesn't mean that she always finds the work pleasant or easy. Uh, The first several weeks of a new novel, Oates has said, are particularly difficult and demoralizing. Uh, Joyce Carol Oates said, quote, Getting the first draft finished is like pushing a peanut with our nose across a very dirty floor. That's Joyce Carol Oates on how she works. I, I like reading these on how good authors work. Maybe some of it will rub off on me. I came across a good article in Vanity Fair about the enduring appeal of Lucy Maud Montgomery's novel, Anne of Green Gables, and about the power of fiction. In the article, June Diane Raphael, who is a writer and actress and a star of Grace and Frankie, she said in the article, I didn't read Anne, with an E, of course, of Green Gables. I devoured Anne of Green Gables. At the time, I didn't understand why Anne's commitment to her own intelligence, kindness, and disruptive red hair meant so much to me. Why watching Anne sit on a bench and stare toward her beloved best friend Diana Barry's house, crying, Henceforth we must be strangers living side by side made my heart soar. Now I realize that she was my first heroine. Anne was a principled young woman who loved her friends and her schoolwork and, of course, Gilbert Blythe. I felt so deeply for Anne and, in turn, for myself. I credit surviving my early teen years, I was five feet nine at the age of 11, to Anne of Green Gables. If she could do it, then I could too. That's June Diane Raphael on the effect of Anne of Green Gables had on her. I enjoy reading testaments testaments to the power of fiction. This story changed June. Maybe you are writing such a novel, such uh, maybe another Anne of Green Gables, a story that deeply moves readers. What a reward for us writers. I am done for the day. If you'd like to send me a message, my email address is jimfairseattle at gmail.com. I hope to see you next time. Until then, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.